Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Attention, attention, <laughs> action this day. Yeah, that's more like uh, hello, it. We have, that's more like it, isn't it? Hello, we have ways, listeners. Um, today, uh, James and I, well, it's the first of our most important week in history uh, specials. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, we think it's not the week important. of the first test at Lords. <laughs> yeah, it would, well, it is, the, it, is that, it is that important. We're talking about Dunkirk, about the, the, the evacuation at Dunkirk. Um, and uh, we're going to—we're offering you eight days of this scintillating content with guests um, offering their opinions, um, people who really know what they're talking about as well. I mean, the right—you know—if you've got the the Navy's historian on, you're, you're you're talking to the right person, I think. I noticed, James, that you have a ladder now with your library in the background. There. <laughs> well, I always uh, had cool. the ladder, but it was just further down. But I've I've, I've just invested in a new bike, and I because it's new and shiny, I don't want to put it out in the back of the house. So it's um it's in Fair it's enough. in the study with me. But yeah, um, so I have brought my ladder in, but it doesn't slide uh, slide across like like Steve's does. Uh, yeah. Well, yes, that's Steve Prince, who will we will be talking to later about the naval contribution to um. To the well, the miracle of Dunkirk. I think. I mean, before we before we go back, I think one thing we that's worth saying is when it's described as the miracle of Dunkirk, that's not hyperbole. 
And that's not, no, that's, really not myth, that's not myth making and that's not um, clinging to some uh, rosy tinted view of of what happened. It, it, it is undoubtedly um, uh, a, a military miracle. I mean, it's a thing, as, as, as we'll talk about, that the, the British were capable of doing. You know, it's not like they it's not like they had to build the ships to do it and all that sort of thing. They were they were everything's they in place isn't at it? their disposal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a yeah. huge but, amount but, of luck involved. without the expectation. Yeah, without huge the expectation they're ever going to have to do a thing like this ever. But so let's set, let's set the scene. So we're starting with Sunday the 26th of May. And I think I think the thing that kind of yeah. really strikes me about this week is just that, you know, it, the fact that it's a national day of prayer on Sunday the 26th of May kind of suggests that they're kind of up the creek and they haven't got a paddle and they've got not much else to yeah. kind of re- re- revert to. And... By the end of the week, kind of things have turned around. You know, it's so much happens in the following seven days. And in that time, at the start of that week, as we shall see, you know, Britain really is staring down the barrel. It is absolutely on the brink. But the interesting thing is because that's because of political machinations rather than actually pure military factors. Yeah. But there is a huge amount of luck in the whole week. You know, the fact that the, the... the sea, the channel is kind of dead calm for literally the whole seven, eight days. Um, yeah. the fact but that there's cloud cover that inconveniences the Luftwaffe. Absolutely. So it's like, how, how, the, how the hell do you get that combination? Yeah. You know? I mean, for, that's, for, for, uh, that, and for that stretch of time. Of um, yeah. And of course, Hitler's halt order of the Panzers, which gives us a kind of the chance to kind of actually create a perimeter around Dunkirk and actually defend it. Because once you've got behind the perimeter, actually, that's a pretty good defensive line. I mean, that. Yeah. So basically, for those who don't know, there's a sort of canal that goes from from kind of sort of Belgium inland a, a few miles and kind of goes south um, all around Dunkirk, and that is yeah. a really formidable barrier to anyone trying to go and of course what you can't do is you can't send tanks across it because all the bridges are blown yeah um the only way yeah. that you're going to get across it is for infantry to get across and then bridge it and then you can send your panzers over yeah. um and the infantry haven't come up yet of course which is the which is the which is the, well, the reason for the, the infantry have come after all some of the infantry have come yeah, but, up but, 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 not in, B, but, but not in not in not in sufficient numbers for for the germans to be confident to 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 really do anything, which is what's led to the halt order, after all, which is why, you know, why von Ronstadt gets cold feet, which then transmit to Hitler, who issues the order. And then you've got the thing of, of when the halt order's rescinded, you've got, you've got generals going, well, I'm not going to do it yet until the very last minute because I'm in charge here, thank you very much, yeah, not yeah, anyone yeah. else. Yeah. And you've got all that, you've got all that sort of um, electric static going on yes. in, the, in the German command system. Um, but the big thing, Al, makes... the big thing is that had yeah. the Panzers been allowed to just keep going, they would have got yeah. in behind the BF or the vast majority of the yeah, BF yeah. before yeah. they had got in and organised themselves behind the perimeter. The reason yeah. the perimeter is so is so well defended is because the infantry that are doing that defence have had the time to organise themselves. We talk a lot yeah. about balance and being off balance. They are totally off balance at the beginning of that that period, sort of 24th, 23rd of of May. They are on balance again by the time it comes to the halt order being lifted on the 28th of May. But we are jumping the gun because we were going to do... Yeah, and later in the week, later in the week, we will, we're going to talk about what happens to the battalion, one of the one of the battalions yes. that basically doesn't make it back, yes. and, and the experience of kind of being outside the the thing, trying to hold the Germans up before the perimeter coalesces. Because I think that the, 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 you know, aside from the na- naval miracle, that you're touching on something really important here is the is the the BEF 
you know, set set off on May the basically the end, very end of May the tenth, May the eleventh, with their plan, with the Grand Allied plan. That what you're going to do is is meet the meet what turns out to be the faint yep. um, in Belgium B. and the belt. Exactly, and the Belgians have the Belgians have blown hot and cold about whether they're going to help anyway, or how actually useful they're going to be to their allies um, by staying neutral and then eventually eventually throwing their lot in. So you've so so that that picture is complex in itself. The the plan is executed. It turns out to you know that you know whether it's a feint or not, they're flanked. So uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether it's a feint or I not. Think it, I think I think it's worth just going back back because the decision yeah, is on. is the assumption is that what the Germans will do when they if and when they attack, they're going to attack through the Low Countries because to attack yeah. through the Ardennes is full of hills and rivers and narrow roads. Yeah, yeah. and they haven't got and, and the much vaunted. Nazi war machine, i.e. panzers, half-tracks, all that kind of stuff, won't be able to get through the Ardennes because yeah, it's yeah. too narrow and all the rest of it. Um, and so that is, also, that is discounted. But also, but also you're, you know, the much-vaunted Nazi war machine, after all, is a thing that actually really c- kind of comes after this. I mean, in Poland, yes. everyone knows it's an unequal struggle. Yes. The, 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 the expectation here is that this is sort of... Uh, that, in fact, the Allies... Are more than evenly matched with the Germans. Right. That's what the that's the Allied expectation. So, so, so the French are overall. So, the overall military commander is General Maurice Gamelin, who is the commander in yep. chief of, of of the. I mean, he's equivalent of kind of the the um, chief of the Imperial um, um, General Staff, the the most senior yeah. military figure in France, and. His plan, in cahoots with the British, but they are very much the senior partner, is that that is what the Germans are going to do, because that's what they always do. Yeah. Um, well, and though, Mechelen, even, though and actually, even though they actually don't, because they crossed the yeah. River Meuse at Sedan in, in 19, 1870 and again in 1914. Yeah. But anyway, be yeah. that as it may. Then there is the Mechelen incident, where, where, um, where they pick up the plans, and the original German plans are exactly that. They are to come yeah. through the Low Countries, because that's the easiest bit yeah. for motorised... Um, for, for mechanised uh, um, uh, machinery. And um, yeah. so they assume that that is true. They assume, uh, and of course, that is what prompts Halder, who is the chief of staff of the German army, to go, actually, no, this, this, this old going through the Ardennes thing actually does have some merit and completely changing yeah, it. Yeah. But, but trying to persuade the Allies that the, the original plan, going for the Low Countries, is what they're going for. So it's, a, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an envelopment. So the, the Gamelin's plan is, is to move up to the River Dial. Now, they can't go into Belgium until German troops enter Belgium because Belgium yeah. is neutral and Belgium won't yeah, allow yeah. them to make forts or, or defensive positions yeah. on the Belgian, Belgian-German border or, or, or Dutch border or anything because that's what, not what neutral people do. The counter argument yeah. to that is actually you don't you just okay you go fine well don't worry about the Belgians then okay we'll we'll, we'll do without their twenty divisions and we'll do without the kind of fifteen divisions of the Dutch and the Dutch and the Belgian air force we'll just yeah. stay on the French border because actually there's rivers yeah. on the French border as well the problem yeah. is is that that is very close to the industrial heartland um, or, or around Lille in that northern French area yeah. and of course there is still the psychological scar of having much of the war being fought on French soil in 1914-18 yeah, yeah. so that is very yeah. very quickly dismissed even though that would have been a much more sensible idea it's a much more practical idea but it's but it's not an emotional idea um, well or, or, poli- or, or, or a political the politics idea. of it and no. all that because after all the after, after all the you know very we very rarely actually talk about politics on this podcast no. we float into the fourth sphere which is actually what you can do politically right um we we you know we tend to get no further up than strategic which after all 
sometimes it's, expre- it's an expression of politics and sometimes it simply isn't. It's an expression of what you what you can do because you're committed to, to to fighting war. But yeah, the politics comes in here and 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 the Fred the, the the but as you say, so the French are running running the thing. The plan is to the plan is this. So you've got, you got this to, hinge. So yeah. the interesting thing is you've got yeah. the famous Maginot line or infamous Maginot line, yeah. which which clearly the Germans are. They've got to get across the Rhine, um, uh, and and then they've got to get across the Maginot line. The Maginot line is, to all yeah. intents and purposes, impregnable. So they're not going to do that. Then there is the hinge where you suddenly the line the the boundary kind of turns northwestwards, and that is yes. a flexible hinge. And the actual hinge is Sedan, um, which is yeah. across the River Meuse. And so the idea is is that what they'll do is they'll advance up to the River Dial. And the River Dial yeah. is like 60, 70 miles north. Um, then there is this extra plan, which is to go up into, into, into Holland, um, which involves moving an entire army from the Central Reserve up onto the kind of western flank. Uh, yeah. And by the time it's actually moved up to this position on the western flank of the, of the, of the Allied position, the Germans have already kind of sort of overrun it, so the whole thing is completely yeah, 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 yeah. But but as it is, although the the, the warning is is the moment the Germans attack, we're off. In actual fact, even the British don't really get going till lunchtime, even though the warnings no, no, no. have been since kind of four in the morning, uh, yeah. and and it's just a bit too late. And so by the time they actually yeah. get to the dial, no sooner do they get to the dial than the Belgians on the British left and the fifty fifth. It's not the fifty fifth French division. I can't remember which French division it is. There's neither here nor there. But the French division yeah. on their on their on their right, both are starting to fall back. So they then fall back to the next river line, which is the Esco. And the Esco is one yeah. of those rivers that's been straightened into a canal. So it's dead straight. Yeah. It's about 30, 40 yards wide. It's a very very good defensive position. And actually, yeah, it's an bit, excellent defensive uh, position. And the BEF do really well there because actually the Germans at one point get across the river Esco and they kick them back and shove them back across the yeah. across the river. Yeah. But then again, the French and the British are collapsing either side. And of course, the, the southern flank now has been exposed because Army Group A has come through the, the, the Ardennes. They have crossed the River Meuse in three days. They've reached the River Meuse in three days and crossed it in four. In actual fact, they do just about at, at um, um, uh, just north of, of Dinant. They do actually get across on the night of the of the 12th. Um, uh, yeah. and, um, and so they... Um, the whole of the southern bit is just collapsed. There's this huge hole blown in the French line yeah, yeah. around Sedan, Dinant and Monterme. And it's unrecoverable. And the problem is, is because the French can't yeah. move quickly, then the Germans are able to take them out in penny packets. They're absolutely stymied by this incredibly top-heavy um, control system, command and control system, yeah. which well, doesn't and involve also, quick comms. And that's the problem. And also problems of coherence, because, they're, because their soldiers in preparation for the war have been... Uh, uh, have been the infantry have been being used to build fortifications. They've been uh, doing agricultural work. Yes, they're, they've they've not been training, and then and they're they're not they're not match fit. And if if the if the the Germans have have, have figured out one thing, it's that you need you need people well trained, and you need that all joined up, especially in your in your the sharp end of your advance. So the so what you end up with is you end up with where where, where the sedan where sedans popped open, and they start to they start to 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 flank the the BEF is you've got really not really good French soldiers in such an excellent it's such an important position and they're 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 not re- they're not ready for it and you get you get French officers going well you know we don't have coherence here and you look at you look at why and it's because they haven't been training right and also they have a rotation uh 
thing yeah which they get from verdun which is the experience of the first world war where you need to rotate people in and out because because they're going to get worn out at the front so no one knows anybody and they're all in that i mean you talk about the germans picking off the french penny packets the french are in penny packets yeah because that's how they've been running their line so so it's little wonder really that when the germans who you know a a bank a a bank putting every you know basically putting everything on black aren't they yeah and are gambling everything. You've got the, the sharp end people who've got their shit together. It's, yeah. the th- it's, yeah. it's sort of what, what happens. I think I think you can think of the, there's five reasons why it, why it fails for the French and subsequently their you know the Belgians and Dutch and, and the British in yeah. France. The first one is is the lack of political unity in France at the time. So there are, I think I, can't, I think there's something like thirteen coalition governments, and the current yeah. government has only been in for a couple of months. And and uh, Paul, Paul Reynaud is the is prime minister. No one likes him, uh, although yeah. actually he's pretty good. Um, you know he, he's he's politically largely impotent. He's I think yeah. there's something like twelve different parties within it and because it, yeah, so, I, so it's, it's not a kind of Lib Dem Tory coalition where actually you can no. still make decisions. You cannot make any decisions because no one can agree on anything. And when you do yeah, finally yeah. agree on anything, it's a it's a horrible compromise that no one wants. And the problem is, is if your if your political masters don't have that kind of strength of vision and will, your military commanders are similarly kind of to a large extent, impotent. Then I think the second problem with the French is is that the commanders are just too old. You know, they're all in their 60s. You know, um, Weygand, who takes over from um, from Gamelin, is 73 or 4 or something. Petain himself is over 80. So, you know, they're just not... You know, German and and British commanders are all late 40s, early 50s. And that that tenure difference is actually quite substantial because you're constantly having to deal with a a huge flow of information and your job, the higher you go up the command, is to make fewer decisions, but the fewer decisions you have to make have greater responsibility and and potential importance. So the ones you've got to make, you know, your your, your high command for your ability to make good, sound judgment. But if your overall picture is wrong, incorrect in the first place. So so basically the overall French policy is it's going to be basically exactly the same as the First World War, but with heavier guns and more concrete. So in other words, yeah. it's going to be long, it's going to be attritional, it's, it's, it's going to be largely immobile. As it turns out, they're kind of half right or half wrong, depending on which way you look at it, because it does turn out to be long and attritional, but it yeah. is never static but, or very rarely yeah. static, you know, only for a short yeah, period yeah, yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. That's, yeah. that's two of the reasons. The third reason is that it's just, they're just too top heavy. So there is, yeah. you, you know, you need to, um, um, you, you need to give your, your, your junior commanders latitude to think on their own feet. And, and there is, the, the, the top heavy nature of the French command doesn't allow for that. And consequently, morale has got really bad. People have been static. They've been a long way from home. Yeah. Most of them are reservists who've been called up. They don't want to be there. They're pissed off. And as we've discussed quite a lot of times on this show, if you don't have morale, you haven't got much of an army, particularly when you're from a yeah, democratic yeah. nation like France. So yeah. that's three three reasons. Third reason is the army of the air is an absolute shit show, even though they've got much the same number of aircraft as the Luftwaffe. They're all over the place. No one's talking to one another. There is no air defence system. There's no coordination whatsoever. So that's a big, big downer. And then the fourth, fifth one, and possibly the most important of all, is the, is the lack of comms. And it's just this lack of radios, lack of ability to be able to communicate. Yeah. And so no one can move because you've got to go from 
army you know you've got to go from high command to army group to army to corps to division to brigade and every single time they're trying to do it through field telephones and dispatch riders and it just gets stuck in the clog up of broken telephone lines of streets and roads which are clogged with refugees no one can move yeah. and so no decisions are yeah. made because no one well, is allowed to use their initiative because of the top heavy and nature. you've got yesterday's yesterday's news Usually, and the and right. the, and the, and you, you're you're using yesterday's news to make orders for tomorrow, and the the problem is what's happening today. And, Correct. And that, that, you, you've you've, you've summarised that in much more pithily and concisely than I have. And and that's what keeps happening to the French, isn't it? Is they keep planning something for tomorrow based on what happened yesterday. And and the Germans are somewhere else completely already yeah. today. And, and the and, absolute and, classic case is is, is the counterattack at Arras, which takes yeah, place yeah. on the uh, if I remember rightly the twenty first of, of 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 May, and what happens there is that is supposed to be a coordinated Anglo-French armoured thrust, and basically yeah. the French don't turn up, and the reason they don't turn up yeah, is yeah. because they just can't get the orders to the right people at the right time at the right yeah. speed, yeah. and as it is yeah. this kind of half-hearted little. Um, little thrust rather than a counterattack actually completely throws the Germans and is is directly yeah. responsible for the halt order that that comes. And, and yet, what's interesting about that? Very this, sort of, that. Well, this, well, exactly because this. Well, although it's crucial what it achieves. I mean, mm. it's one of those things where, yeah. because it's essentially a botched attack. They don't get the infantry up nope. that they need. They haven't got proper radio comms. So you've got you've got the guys in these Matilda twos yep. doing it with ha- the officers doing it with hand signals, That's passing right. the orders on with hand signals because they they don't have the radios. And you know, it's been this thing where they've been thinking about this doctrine, but they haven't really had the opportunity to try it yet. Whereas the Germans. You know, and I think Poland is really important in this. Is the Poland's have at least given it, given it all a, a run once. They've had a look at what they need to do and what how they can improve things. Which the British haven't had the opportunity. But you've also got because the the Arras counterattack is all is quite like what happens at Ston, where the French put in a c- counterattack with with some Charbet. That's right. Yeah, that go very very well to start with with the Germans you know the gross Deutschland are completely caught out yeah by by a, a by a counterattack there's a guy who drives over French tank commander who drives over a line of German infantry crushes them all yeah because they're all like paralyzed with fear yeah and guns them all down yeah and inflicts huge losses and it and it and it you, you get these odd sticky moments where and it and, and that again that's not a coordinated attack that's like someone going well sod this I'm gonna go and get Get stuck in, which makes you realise that had they been able to coordinate, had they, yeah, well, exactly, it would have exactly been all over. It would have been all that's over. Wh- that's where I'm going with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the, I mean, it's it's Corporal Jones. They didn't like it up them. They didn't like it up them. <laughs> they didn't like it up because only less, you know, only just over thirty percent of the German army are trained. You know what what yeah. what's doing all the damage here is those sixteen mechanized divisions out of 135 yep. that are involved in the in in KCLA you know the, yeah. the which is the the assault in the west you know just yeah. those 16 divisions are doing all the they're doing 90% of the odds yeah you know, it's absolutely so, amazing but to to get us to May the 26th yes. so you've had the halt order you've had the close up order that the panzers first get given and then the halt order and they stop and gort says uh, and this is in the wake of the arras counterattack gort says right well i'm getting over the canal line I'm, I'm just going to do it. Yes. And he makes his own initiative, doesn't he? Yeah. On his own initiative, makes makes a decision and sees it through and gets gets the... And, and there are accounts of German units watching British, you know, who've been told... And the Germans have been told to stop, watching British units march, yeah. march past them, 
getting into the Dunkirk perimeter, which yeah. is amazing. Yes, 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 it is. It is absolutely amazing. And, and this is, um, and, and, and people like the SF Totenkopf, they've had this bloody nose at Arras. They've been attached to Rommel's 7th Panzer Division. They've been involved in yeah. that in that that attack there. Um, they've been sent back. They're in a bad mood anyway. Then they get across the San Quentin Canal and then are told to pull back over it again, pull back yes. because of the halt order. Yes. Which is yeah. why, when they then are allowed to attack, they go absolutely apeshit, and you know there is the um, there is the execution of ninety nine men and all the rest of it. But yeah, yeah, I'm jumping yeah, yeah. the gun here. But I think the other thing that's yeah. really interesting about this is what's going on in the air, and, and the big problem is is that because there is no coordinated air defence system, the only way for the French Army of the Air and the RAF to actually kind of intercept the um, uh, intercept the uh, uh, um, the Luftwaffe is basically to just take off and hope that you bump yeah. into them. You know, so what the Germans are able to do is go, right, let's hammer that airfield today. And so they sweep yeah. in at kind of six o'clock in the morning while everyone's still on the ground and shoot them up on the ground because yeah. the British and the French don't know they're coming. And so they yeah. are, so, so the RAF is hemorrhaging fighter planes. And, of course, Dowding, who is commander-in-chief of, of fighter command, is going, well, hang on a minute. And so he writes that famous letter, which sort of is the beginning of the of the Battle of Britain movie. What's really yeah, interesting about yeah. that is that doesn't really have any effect whatsoever. There's a line where Larry Olivier <laughs> sort of goes, "That's precise." You know, Churchill will have to read this. And he goes, "That's precisely why I wrote it." <laughs> but in actual fact, it makes no difference whatsoever. What does make the difference is what Cyril Newell says, who is actually yeah. the ch the chief of the air staff at the time. And Cyril Newell says, "Look, you know, we've got to stop." having them based over there you can send over aircraft but they've got to be based in southern england and yeah. now that they're close into north, north northern france they don't need to be in france it's the shooting them up right. on the ground that's the problem they can hold their own in the sky it's the yeah. kind of you know and so actually yeah. what happens is although the the ref is withdrawn i think the last planes come out of um of certainly of the northern bit by the 23rd of may that is also the day that fighter command enters the fray because yeah. Fighter Command, which is built, designed, created purely to defend Great Britain, is suddenly over operating over northern France from yeah. Manston, Tangmere, Hawkins, Westmorling yeah. and all the rest of it, those airfields down in southeast England. But Fighter Command is over. And that's why I've always argued that the Battle of Britain starts then, because it is yeah. in that last 10 days of May that suddenly we're up the yeah. creek and we're looking down the barrel. And it is but when you, but, Fighter but, Command enters that, that battle, that but, air battle. But the Fighter Command's task then it's very different to what it's been doing in the Battle for Fra Battle of France anyway, isn't it? It's like you've got a perimeter. You know what you've got to defend. You've got shipping to defend. You've got the, yep. the position to defend. You've got to break up German attempts to, to, to um, raid, the, raid the evacuation area. It's, it's, a, it's a simpler, it's a, it's a yes. more contained task that the pro that's approaching its actual role. Yep. So they find it. They find it's a it's a better fit, don't yeah. they? Is, is, but to start off to. with, I think from kind of sort of twentieth, twenty first, twenty second of May, something like that. You know, thirty two squadron, um, which is Hurricanes and which um, is is operating from Biggin Hill. They are flying over to a forward field during the day in yeah. France, refueling. Yeah. You know, they've got some Mercs there and all yeah. the rest of it. Some you know ground crew operating from there, then flying back to back to Biggin in yep. the evening. You know, because the one thing that is not allowed to happen is for Spitfires to land anywhere. In 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 yes, um, they're in really, they're being apart from on a beach in Dunkirk, of course, with their wheels down. Yeah. <laughs> you so so, yourself, so but, you? but what's happened by the twenty sixth of May? It is absolutely clear. The decision has been made that the only way we're going to get out of this stuck is to evacuate the BEF. You know, yeah. that very morning, Calais falls. You know, Calais yeah. is the closest part across the Channel. 
to, to yeah. England. You know, the swastika is fluttering within kind of within vision of a decent pair of binoculars from Dover. Yeah. You know, suddenly, you know, those guns are now being turned at, at Graveline, um, at Calais, at the, the Pas de Calais are now being yeah. turned onto onto channel shipping. Um, anything that's going back and forth. You know, this is a really perilous situation. And, yeah. and we've got to get those guys out. And, and you know, there is a there is a serious worry that they're not going to be able to get anything more than just a a, a, a teaspoonful of troops back yeah. across across the channel. And, and I think it's just everyone's just can't believe what is happening. You know, it is it's, it's yeah. so sudden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The shock of it after yeah. kind of four years of, of kind of keeping the Germans at bay in 1914 to 1918. Suddenly it's all over in 10 days. You know, they have got yeah. to the coast by the 20th of May in well, 10 well, days. Well, basically, the, German, the Germans, I mean, just if you if you take it from May 10th to, to the fall of Sudan, which is, you know, which is the critical. Three days, moment, The yeah. Germans achieve in three days, achieve more than they did in four years. It's absolutely uh, uh, yeah, a fraction of absolutely. the cost. And on the morning of the 14th of May, that's where, where Paul Reynaud, the French prime minister, rings up Churchill and go, goes, you know, they're through at Sudan. We've lost. We have lost yeah, the battle. Yeah. Uh, and, and everyone knows that's true. You know, yeah. but but what do you do? You know, I mean, what Churchill? What's Churchill supposed to do? You know, everyone's saying don't don't reinforce the French, and he goes, yeah, but they're our ally. You know, we're yeah. fighting side by side. That, 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 you, you don't yeah. just stick the knife into your ally and go, sorry, mate, you're a bunch of losers. We're not going to support you, you do, anymore. You you do get a slight feeling though. Um, I can't remember who's written about this. That, that once this is all done, there's a sort of relief that we're not tagged to a, tied yeah. to an ally anymore. Yes, that, huge that, one. That, right? Okay. Okay. We could. We'll do this. We'll do this our way, and we'll we'll get the obviously get the Americans in any way we can, and you know make reference make good reference references to recommendations to the devil or whatever you know like and so on. But there is a sort of feeling. Oh well, thank thank God we're out of that uh, mess because it has been because the diplomacy running up to the war of trying to get the and obviously the British the British government has. Has done has done full perfidious Albion in the in the years running up the Second World War. Yeah. So no one's hands are clean in this. But the, but there really is a there 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 is there is some mistrust of the French political establishment and all that sort of thing. So, so because are, of the, because certain, of the fractiousness of French politics. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Because you don't know who you're gonna you don't know who you're gonna be going to next. And of course, you know, I mean, one of one of the one of the issues with in the 30s with oppositional politics here is that you get this developing thing where. You know, it's the liberals. The liberal. It's the liberals who who um, uh, bring in the Treaty of Versailles. So the conservatives are basically kind of opposed to it because that's what you do. You're the opposition. Yeah. There isn't real. There isn't proper proper political consensus about Versailles, which is how you get this creeping sense that actually, no, maybe we overdid it. Um, yeah. with Versailles and we ought, the Germans are within their rights to, to hoover yeah. up different dip the, some of the territories they've lost, and and then you, you know, and the, uh, uh, and then. Uh, uh, and, and because you've essentially got a conservative government in the 10 years running up to the war, a national government, whatever, it's got that tone in it as well as appeasement. So yeah. you've got so. So and then the French can't make their minds up because, like you say, their governments are crazy paving and, and you've got Front Populaire and, and all these yep. different yep, yep. stuff and massive rioting in Paris in the yep. 30s and all sorts of civil unrest. Like like people think of. The, the French rioting and the you know like the sixties is the sort of French civil unrest a, a period of and and your gilets jaunes now that was that's a vicar's tea party to compare what was going on in the thirties yeah that's proper right. real real insurrection in, in Paris. there's a, there's a so brilliant anyway. book by Piers Brendan about all this called called yeah. uh, um, the Dark Valley yeah the, the Dark Valley it's an excellent fantastic excellent book, book. Yeah. it takes all in the fact, major all the major yeah. Second World War combatants from Japan to um, to France to, country you know, by 
Yeah, really yeah, good. Country by country. And each chapter sort of goes, meanwhile, in Tokyo. It was bleak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's really good. I mean, I would, I would, I would thoroughly, if you've got, if you've got, if you want to like a, an immediate primer on the, on the interwar years, or if you, or you've got someone doing, someone you know is doing A-level and you want to, want them to, you know, read something different. That's the way, which I've, I've, I've given Willow a copy and she's still <laughs> I, I also think there's um, I think there's another thing at hand and with the kind of relief of France being out of the war and Britain being on it being on its own yeah. in inverted commas is also because I just think Britain has a kind of inbuilt superiority kind of thing going on uh, and it just likes bossing the show it likes being in charge yeah. you know yeah. and its politicians and its commanders like being in charge they don't, they don't like having to play yeah. second fiddle to the French um, no, I think that, I think I think you, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. I think that's ab- that like, is great. entirely true. Now great. we can be in charge. Now we can boss this. You know, yeah, we're masters yeah, exactly. of our own destiny. We're we're no longer kind of you know but, on, on the. But not yet. Right. We're not not no. on not on May the twenty sixth. So so let's we're, let's we're, 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 we're appealing done... to a higher power on the twenty sixth of May. We are not the masters of our own destiny. No, we are certainly not. Um, uh, so let's go. Let's just go through the. <laughs> this is what we're supposed yeah. to do. Uh, twenty five minutes ago. <laughs> Um, let's, but it is a, it's the first day, so it's a biggie. So that's yeah. fair enough. So, yeah. so, so early in the morning, um, Calais falls. Nine yeah. a.m. First war cabinet of the day, where they just go, okay. Yeah. So, what do we deal with? <laughs> How do we deal with that? Um, yeah. Ten a.m. is the is the national day of prayer. Um, it's the main yeah. service at Westminster Abbey, led by the king. So, the the war cabinet, the five man war cabinet, which is Churchill, Lord Halifax. Yeah. Chamberlain, yeah. who was Prime Minister. Halifax, yeah. he's the most respected politician in the country by a country mile. Attlee yeah. and Greenwood from the Labour Party, who are new to the whole thing and are kind of slightly out of their depth at this point. Yeah. They have to cut off, they have to cut short their war cabinet and troop across the House of Parliament, uh, across Parliament Square to uh, um, to Westminster Abbey. Um, yeah. The Panzer Halt order is lifted at 1.30. But this yep. is where they suddenly start having commerce because it doesn't actually reach Panzer Group Kleist, that, that the order has been lifted until the front, the leading Panzers, until eight o'clock yep. that night. Yeah. And then two o'clock is the second war cabinet of the day. And at 2.45, it breaks up because Paul Reynaud has flown over. Yeah, he's in, t- he's Reynaud's flown in to town, Cro- isn't he? To Croydon, yeah. Um, yeah. is met and comes in and he meets with Halifax. Halifax, meanwhile, is having um, meetings with Bastianini, who is the yep. Italian ambassador. Um, and at five past three, Churchill, Chamberlain and Greenwood follow Halifax uh, for this meeting with Renault. And at yeah. four o'clock, Renault leaves and flies back to France. Yeah. Then they have another war cabinet that evening. And at 6.57pm, three minutes to 7pm that evening, Operation Dynamo is launched. The decision yeah. is made to evacuate the British Expeditionary Force at Dunkirk. And at yeah. Dunkirk is, a, is an important caveat because there are, of course, um, also British troops below the Panzer Thrust to the south. Yeah. So suddenly yeah. what's happened is is the Allied forces have been separated. They've been severed in half. Yeah. There's those which are south of the of, 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 um, of the Seine, or, or, but they're still north of the Seine at that point. Uh, yeah. um, and there are, um, but south of the, of the Army Group A Panzer Thrust, and there yeah. are those which are in this pocket, and then there's Army Group B coming around yeah. the north. So yeah. there are two divisions worth. There's a 51st Highland Division, 1st Armoured Division, bulk of it, and another kind of ad hoc force of yeah. British troops, which are which are still kind of south of the of the of the yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is own yeah. Dynamo is only for those who are, are at, at Dunkirk. And that night, yeah. Churchill dines with 
with Anthony Eden, who is a colleague of his, who is the uh, is former foreign going to, secretary. Yeah, yeah, and it's going to be foreign secretary again um, once Halifax is booted out. And Hastings Ismay, who is Churchill's military chief of staff. And yeah. over that dinner, none of them can, they can barely eat. They're picking at their meal because they feel sick inside with anxiety and nerves. And for Churchill, who has this gargantuan appetite for everything, um, not to eat tells you just how bad it is. And yeah. while he's picking at his lamb cutlet, um, orders finally reach the advanced panzer divisions that the halt order has been lifted and then they're off again. And that's where we're at on the night of Sunday the 26th of May. And from a British perspective, it looks really bleak. It's that's I mean it's this is rock bottom. It's rock bottom. <laughs> it's rock bottom. Yeah. Right, great. Well, I think we've set the scene there for our week of rock bottom. Don't call it that, please, ladies and gentlemen. Um uh and we're going to be speaking to dif- different people um uh, every day, I think, to to help illustrate, discuss the issues. And first up, from the Naval Historical Branch, we have Steve Prince. Right, well, that's the scene set for the day. And now we're delighted to say we're joined by the head of the Naval Historical Branch, Steve Prince, who's going to um, basically put these two landlubbers straight on uh, <laughs> <laughs> on uh, the naval effort dynamo um, uh, at, at, um, at Dunkirk. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for joining us. No, my pleasure. And, 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 and Steve, well, what we've done is we've We've just been going through the events of Sunday, the 26th of May, which I always think is amazing because it's a, a, a national day of prayer led by the king. And it's that kind of sort of, you know, what that suggests to me is we're so up the creek, <laughs> there's nothing left for it <laughs> but to pray and hope, which is not great, is it, really? And to reveal that so publicly in a way. Yes, it's one way of transmitting to the public, really, isn't it? Um, yeah. Of exactly how deep you think you're up, uh, you know, how up to your neck you are in it at this point. Yeah, don't panic, uh, don't uh, panic. Because, Pray. Because, because after all, the, 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 the Battle of France has been reported, sort of, it, it sort of totters into disaster in the way it's reported back in, in, in the UK, isn't it? It, it? it ticks along nicely and then, it, and then it becomes quite clear that things have gone horribly wrong. Not quite in real time with events, because obviously no one really knew what was going on. But by this point, that that it's quite clear what's exactly what's hit the fan. Yeah. So, Steve, the situation now is, is by the twenty sixth of May, it's absolutely clear that France is going to lose. It's absolutely clear that that the BEF is in big stuck. You know, and yet, yet Britain and France have have sort of gone into the war extremely confident that it's all going to be fine. Essentially, yes. Uh, I think the main thing, they, they see that there's basically a balance of forces between German military capability, industrial capability and Britain and France, uh, and that they can stand on the defensive was the initial plan till probably 1942, maybe 1943, slowly, systematically building up their industrial production, mobilising more troops, getting the BEF from the strength it was at in the summer of 1940, kind of 10 to 13 divisions, depending on how you count it, to kind of 35, 36 divisions, uh, that Germany would have been worn down by an economic blockade, and that then you could turn on to the offensive slowly from 1942, 43 And that would be the route to victory. So this incredible success by the Germans in the summer of, you know, over just two weeks 
in the summer of 1940. It's what I've called, it's a real strategic earthquake in terms of all the pre-war plans and calculations. Yeah, so they're just, you know, because it throws everything on its head, doesn't it? And suddenly, I mean, the impression I always get by the kind of, by that Sunday, the 26th of May, is that everyone back at home in England is just scratching their heads, just thinking, what the fuck are we going to do? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's just everything has gone wrong. You know, they're absolutely staring down the barrel. Uh, and most people are just don't seem to be thinking clearly. I think that's probably fair. You know, that this was just uh, a contingency in planning that nobody, nobody had thought was remotely feasible. We could see sort of, you know, shades of... Much of our planning for the Second World War is really an attempt to refight the First World War, but without the same scale of casualties. You know, and there are good things that we took from that. It's the idea that actually keeping in step with your allies is really, really important. Hence, we align ourselves very closely to the French, support them loyally, and this sort of thing. But the idea that you could have such a, a turnaround, and I suppose the closest is perhaps sort of France versus Germany in 1870, um, where they'd had a, a success with this sort of attack. But everybody's memory and expectation is much more hooked around 1914-18, where you'd had a couple of periods of danger in 1914 and 1918, but the Germans had never made it to the Channel ports. So, so it mm. did seem unimaginable to people that this could happen and happen so quickly. And do you think, I mean... I mean there is this sort of obviously you know people people talk in military terms they talk an awful lot about balance don't they about pe- being on balance and off balance and right now at this moment everyone's off balance there's a, there's a plan being put into place for operation dynamo which is rescuing the BEF but that doesn't come into play until you know that's not given the green light until the evening of that sunday the 26th i mean do you think there's this sort of case where everyone's you, you know people are so off balance they're, they're just not really quite sure what to do I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, so, so there is a case of sort of individual and selective just shock, trauma um, of something that just seems, unim- you know, to some extent, COVID-19, you know, 9-11. These are the sort of events that for us will give us some sort of touching point as just how dramatic that change is. Um, but I think what you do have that's quite impressive is that you've still got commanders and staff And this is, I suppose, Churchill's finest hour in the sense of he is looking to the future, whether reasonably or unreasonably, he is not giving into the shock. And so he's got all sorts of ideas, uh, some of which are reasonable, many of which are not. But it's more about getting back on the front foot on on what we can recover. And I guess Dynamo is the most important one that emerges. So at what point during the during the day uh, does it does Dynamo actually start to sort of... uh... Uh, emerge or you know but by 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 the by the evening is it right okay that's what we're going to do i mean but while the country's saying its prayers people are rushing around in, in the admiralty surely saying well we've got ships here we've got people there we can bring this in we'll need to do that we'll redirect this that and the other is it is it being keyed together that quickly yes yeah so in the admiralty and the difference between the admiralty compared to the war ministry or the air ministry is the fact that you've got an operational HQ in London. So the War Ministry and the Air Ministry are kind of, you know, allocating forces to commands out in the field. But because of the nature of kind of ships and moving them globally, you've got a protected bunker um, on the edge of Whitehall, just off Horse Guards, 
that you've got staff in there working. Um, and so the Dynamo decision is made on the Sunday uh, and the execute signal goes to Admiral Ramsey at Dover that evening and it's up churning the next day. And one of the big challenges is is how to get to Dunkirk, isn't it? Because it's not as simple as just sort of, you know, what's the straightest line, let's go. Because there's mines and there's and there's now there's guns on the coast which are manned by Germans, not French anymore. Yeah, so there are also... I mean, you start from the fact that there's an awful lot of, you know, the normal maritime hazard that goes with the routes anyway. You know, there is shallow water, there are shoals... Um, there are navigation and there is a bit of a war between the different sides on navigation markers. So sinking each other's navigation buoys and this sort of thing. Um, right. Then you go into exactly that. You've got um, attacks by aircraft and you've got attacks by shore batteries. So though the, the route is perhaps sort of Dunkirk to Dover, probably around 40 nautical miles, you've got routes that you have to put in and mark out that can be anything up to 90 nautical miles. Uh, how fam- how familiar was the navy with Dunkirk? Had, had they been when when the BF was going going in? You know the previous year and, and while it was being kept in the field before before the the, the uh, before the you know the war proper starts on May the tenth was was the, the navy familiar with Dunkirk? Was it one of the ports they'd been using? It was on on a secondary scale, and so one of the things that's interesting about the BF is though. The, the channel ports in that sort of northeast corner were used. They were used almost entirely for just troop transfers. So this is leave transfers and troops. So because the ferry pattern predominantly in that part of the world, is it's a bit of freight, but it's mainly passengers going back and forth. So you've got familiarity. Um, you've got Admiral Ramsey at Dover Castle. And again, in the tunnels below Dover Castle, controlling that patch mainly for the fear of Germans, you know, maritime incursion to try and cut it. But one of the interesting things is most of the heavy lines of supply for the BEF are actually laid through Normandy. They're laid through Cherbourg and Le Havre, and then they drive up that bit of the coast. And that was put in partly because you've got big ports in Southampton and Portsmouth to big ports in Normandy uh, and the coast and all the things that we'll learn about kind of four years later in the war. But also it was that to keep the lines of supply safe from air attack, to keep them out of range of German yeah, aircraft yeah, yeah, in yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. Uh, northern Germany. So you, you've got familiarity, but, it, you know, Ramsey Dover Command was seen as a significant but kind of second string command before all these events. So Ramsey is kind of thrust into the front of history. But he's been retired never... as well, hasn't he? He's been retired, Yeah, so he... he... That's right. He'd been retired... Um, it retired at his own request in the late 1930s. He'd been working in a chief of staff job uh, and his admiral wouldn't let him get on with work. So he felt frustrated and quit. Um, and he'd been brought back. He'd been kind of earmarked, if you like, like many retired officers for a wartime role. So in the 1938, in the Czech crisis, he had already been earmarked for the command at Dover. So he has some familiarity oh, right. with the job he's likely to go to. And he'd served there in the First World War as well as a destroyer commander. So he's got a reasonable level of familiarity with it. But it was thought that this would mainly be, if you like, a transit route with the threat of German naval or air raids, not what it became absolutely in the front seat. So they'd better hope that he's up to it then, hadn't they? I mean, you know, that's the other thing. I mean, I mean, you know, you're, you're suddenly thrusting a vast amounts of responsibility onto his shoulders, which he would never reasonably have expected to have thrust upon him at this particular stage. I mean, you know, it's quite a big thing, isn't it? To say, you know how 
you've just come out of retirement and we put you on this sort of, you know, comparative backwater for the Royal Navy. And, and you know how you've just been transferring troops back and forth. Well, now we want you to oversee the entire evacuation of the BEF and some French soldiers as well. And you need to get on with it really, really quickly. Can you do it by kind of, you know, um, be up and running by tomorrow morning? I mean, <laughs> I mean, just imagine getting that call. <laughs> yeah. But was, was, was he given a blank check, though, effectively? Yes, in many ways. So whatever resources that he could plausibly pull into that area. Uh, And so the main difficulty is getting stuff to him. But if there was anything he wanted that could be got to him, he is given, uh, you know, a a sort of first priority to get it. So he's given a lot of destroyers that are brought down the coast from other naval bases. Um, And we're we're obviously familiar with the little ships, but also there are basically a, a ton of coastal craft, of cross-channel ferries, of kind of ferries that are doing across the, to the you know, from Portsmouth to the Isle of Wight, um, of a lot of the Dutch shipping. And one of our real resources that we don't talk about at all is there is a ton of Dutch shipping and other refugee shipping that has come over to Britain just, you know, a week beforehand, which right. is immediately turned round and then used for the Dunkirk evacuation as well. So it's it's one of the first sort of really allied efforts, albeit a completely ad hoc one of the war. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, it, it's it it, 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 The navy had done no contingency planning for this eventuality. That's the that had they that it's not like they. It's not like like I mean you mentioned COVID like the COVID nineteen thing where they they at least have an epidemic a pandemic plan file. They get the box file down obviously every other year, dust it down and and and, and then. Decide, decide that it's fine and they put it back. There literally was no get the BF out of France in a great big hurry plan. No, no I mean, had, the no closest had... you would get would probably be a bit of almost kind of officer muscle memory of some of the 1918 where there was a chance of the Germans breaking through to the coast and cutting off the first BEF. So there is a little bit of sort of familiarity with that and with the ports, but... To do the job, no, absolutely none whatsoever. What you have got, I suppose, though, is you've got officers who have been trained to deal with the kind of unexpected problems. Um, And one of the perhaps most important qualifications for Ramsey is he'd gone to the Imperial Defence College, so the highest level kind of defence college available in the 1930s, both as a student, and then he'd gone back as the directing staff. So he was used to dealing with sort of sudden problems that involved army navy air force being set through that training and that gave him a familiarity with a lot of the same commander so Allenbrook had been at the imperial defense college so you've got you know that that level of kind of familiarity that means they're not they're starting with a blank page on the problem but they're definitely not starting on a blank page with the kind of the mindsets and the networks to do it i'd say yeah, the other thing about the Royal Navy is it's just amazing how many different ships. I mean, you know, you when you think of the Royal Navy, you think of sort of battleships, cruisers, aircraft carrier, destroyers. In the case of, of Dynamo, it's mainly kind of destroyers that one thinks of. But there's a whole load of other things which are flying the white ensign, which, you know, are not traditional naval craft, are there? There's, there's lots of sort of trawlers and all sorts yeah. of other ships that are kind of sort of, uh, are sort of polloined and kind of brought into it. Drifters. Well, I mean, what's a drifter? So a drifter, effectively, you've got the uh, what a drifter is one of a whole cast of kind of small ships that you're using effectively round naval bases to do things like lay nets, recover wreckage, 
uh, right. recover torpedoes that have been fired for training. Right. So there are a whole series. We think of the Navy, you're quite right, as the big projects, the battleships, the carriers, down to probably the destroyers. So the ships that you lay down in peacetime that take, you know, two or three, maybe four or five years to build that are big investments. But there is this whole supporting flotilla that you have some of in peacetime, but you can rapidly expand in wartime um, to make up the Royal Navy, to protect ports, to recover air crew, to deal with a right. whole series of things. So trawlers, you've got a mixture of Admiralty-built trawlers that you can use for a whole series of kind of everyday tasking. Um, yep. It's almost, if you like, the big warships are there for the critical days and then there are this whole supporting cast of players who are there for the typical days, day in, day out, patrol work, mine clearing, and on this occasion, you know, getting to the beaches, getting a few people off, linking perhaps between the shore and bigger ships, this kind of thing. Many of them, some of them are manned by the regular Royal Navy, but this is where the Royal Naval Reserve, so you've got two sorts of reserve effectively, the Royal Naval Reserve, who are the professional seamen, who, you know, have a reserve capable, a commitment to the Royal Navy, and the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, you know, they, they're sometimes called the yachtsmen, as some of them said, you know, the trouble with Royal Navy training, you could either do the training or do the yachting, you didn't have time for both. But these are people who are not specialist seamen, but have volunteered for the Navy in wartime. And they're the people who are manning more and more of these little flotilla ships. And by the end of the war, they'll be commanding the majority yeah, yeah, of them, yeah. they'll be commanding and it will have moved up to corvettes and frigates and this sort of thing. But but one of the things that always strikes me about, about British, in the you know, Royal Navy in, in the Second World War is that to start off with, you know, it's it's the world's largest in, in September 1939. But you've got, so you've got a kind of a base from which to rapidly expand anyway, you know, because you can spread yeah. that, that professionalism very quickly. But because we're an island nation, because we're a nation where there are a lot of people who, you know, live on creeks and rivers and by the sea and all the rest of it and know their kind of reef knots and and, and, and know their jibs from their poop decks or whatever. Um, you can tell I'm not a sailor. Um, um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there is, a, there is a sort of base knowledge, which when you're suddenly joining the Navy, presumably is quite helpful, isn't it? Yeah, particularly for that early expansion for this sort of 1939-40. Um, later on in the war, you're bringing in an awful lot more people who don't have any experience, who often can't swim, and putting them through the Navy. But you're right. I suppose a Navy and Air Force, maybe to some extent an Army, in peacetime, it's kind of an all-regular spine of people that you can flesh out with some people who've got maritime experience you can top up, and then eventually you get to people who've got no maritime experience, and you can balance them off. Uh, and you could take that back to Nelson's time where you would have had the professional yeah. sailors and then the landsmen in the crew. And as long as you've got a proportion of both to mix together, you can do it. Um, you can expand. Probably the most remarkable expansion in this whole period is the fact that, of course, Britain's war is not really Britain's war. It's the Empire and Commonwealth War. Uh, and, yeah. you know, the events of 1940 is actually gets a huge kind of rocket boost from this. The Royal Canadian Navy has six ships in 1939, six destroyers. In 1945, it's got over 400 ships and it's the third nice. biggest just, navy in the world. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just a phenomenal expansion. Never, never play down the contribution of the Canadians. That's, that is, I've, no. I've learned over the years. You know, in the air, on land and the sea, they're amazing. And volunteers all. Yeah. Incredible. 
And volunteers all. So what's the first what what's the first order that Am, uh, Ramsey issues then the, the 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 following morning when he actually is when the orders for Dynamo start to go out? What's the what's the first thing on his on his list? So effectively, his, I'll say the first thing is first of all working out what ships he's got first under his command and what he can then bring in from neighbouring commands. So it's trying to determine what level and there is a constant during Dynamo. There is a debate about where to put the destroyers. So the numbers are going up and down almost every day because you strip destroyers out of things like the home fleet and other bases and you're taking risk with them. So you're trying to get to, you know, balancing the risk off. And he gets up to, you know, at different times, 30 plus destroyers. I think there are 41 over the whole kind of operation that serve. Then he's trying to gather in all these small craft that James is talking about. And then it's that problem with planning of thinking, right, the civilian craft aren't going to be with me on day one or day two, but I need to activate them as early as possible. And while some of them come with their civilian crew, a lot of them are actually manned by the Navy for the operation. Yes. So it's trying so to they do say, that. Right, we're now, to we're now taking this over, aren't we? We're, you know, your yeah. boat here at, here at Lowestoft, it's now ours for the duration. Yes. You can, you can have it back next which, Thursday. Which is the... Th- the thing I remember, I remember as a child from the Falklands War. I remember, remember that, that that suddenly you've got the Herald of Free Enterprise and and the Atlantic yeah. Conveyor and all these yeah, so all these ships being seconded and are suddenly part of suddenly part of the Navy. Although they were merchant marine merchant the QE2. navy crews, weren't they? But famously, yeah, yes, the QE2. QE2. So uh, yeah. the, the the elegant phrase that we use at work is stuffed, which is ships <laughs> taken up from trade, is the technical term for it. Um, and actually, interesting <laughs> enough, uh, the fleet That's a today. Brilliant acronym, I love that. <laughs> Ships taken up. So the fleet place. today still has uh, Argus, a Royal Fleet Auxiliary, which was contender yep. Byzant in 1982 when she was taken over for the Falklands War, and then she was brought That's into amazing. the fleet and has been kept on. And this is sort of a stage further. This sort of taking up merchant ships and uh, ferries. There's, you know, they're referred to in the official history as passenger ships. They are basically the cross-channel ferries or the ferries and the pleasure ships that are used on the Thames or to go across to the Isle of Wight. And after the destroyers, they are the group that take off the largest single numbers of troops from Dunkirk and bring them home. And then you get to this sort of third layer, as we talked about, where you're talking about yachts and pleasure craft and motor launches and things that are coming over. Some of them manned by their owners, but many of them actually taken over and manned by the Navy. Gosh, so first he's doing his inventory, activating whoever's, whoever he's got available to him, juggling what he can actually draw, draw down from other, other duties around the British Isles and the, and the Western approaches. Then he's, got to, he's also got to talk to the army, um, uh, which, which after all, which bit of the army? Because the army, you know, you've got the army in London who don't, obviously don't really know what's happening in France. Gort is trying to actually run what's left of his battle. So, so you know, uh, immediately, who's he, is, he, is he talking to France, the, the army in France, first the BAF, or is he talking to London? Uh, uh, so, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, because after all, there's, lo- there's, there's lots of... There's lots of pot- I mean, what's so amazing <laughs> about this is there's lots of potential wrong a- a- alleys f- of communication you could bark up. And, and also, how, um, how heavy is Churchill on this? How heavy are the war Kevin on this? Are they letting him get on with it? Or are they on the phone every half hour going, have you done this yet? Oh, I think, you know, action this day and prompting, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you can imagine, because I think Churchill is well aware. And I think Churchill deliberately probably sets expectations low 
the idea that we, you know, we're looking to recover 35,000 troops, that sort of thing, initially. Um, and I think that's both to sort of scale, you know, expectations. And frankly, Churchill's probably already worked out if you can get more off, that's your first in propaganda terms, turning this from defeat into a form of victory. Right, yeah, if you yeah, set yeah, the yeah, expectation yeah. that low. Because Churchill, I think people forget, he's become prime minister on the 10th of May. He doesn't become leader of the Tory party until November 1940, when Chamberlain dies. So he knows, as a prime minister, he's in a, a, a situation where only success keeps him going. So he's got to constantly build. He hasn't got a kind of automatic kind of inbuilt majority in the way that most prime ministers have. He does soon later as he establishes a track record, but it's not obvious from this point onwards. I think probably the most important thing Ramsey does is he sends uh, Captain Bill Tennant. Yeah, well, I was going France, to come on to him. Over to Dunkirk. Yeah. yeah. He becomes the senior naval officer at Dunkirk. So he goes over to be Ramsey's eyes and ears to look at the reality and what can be done. Uh, in Dunkirk and getting him there within 24 hours as quickly as possible to make an assessment on the ground. Yes, because he's 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 because he's working at the Admiralty, isn't he, on Sunday? And then he gets a call going, report to to to, to Ramsey in Dover, nine hundred, you know, oh nine hundred hours tomorrow morning. He gets there on time, having had a sort of you know driven through the night. Um, pitches up and goes, well, what what's what's the gen then, Skip? And and, <laughs> and Ramsey says, you know, we've got. 24, 36 hours to do this, something like that. And he goes, okay. Yes. Gets on Wolfhound, I think, which is a destroyer. Wolfhound, Gets across yeah. there. He's yeah. there by about five in the afternoon, something like that. And and I love the story about him suddenly realising he's got no kind of badge of authority whatsoever. So he tears up a um, a cigarette paper, um, the silver of, of the liner of a, of a fag packet, and sticks it, SNO, onto his tin hat with fish, you know, with fish paste. It's absolutely amazing. And there he is, you know, with his SNO on his tin hat. Yeah. Um, and, and it is that funny mixture of a naval party who are sort of half-garbed as army and half-garbed as navy that you see as the war goes on, on on sort of various beaches, getting in or getting out again. Um, the one thing we should say is, of course, the French have a naval headquarters um, at Dunkirk. Oh, yes, it's so Admiral what he can Abriel, do, it? uh, He plugs into Admiral Abriel for a lot. So, again, though we see it, it is very much a shared Anglo-French uh, operation in that sense. So with Abriel, he does have someone to plug into to give him some of the realities on the ground, as well as plugging into the British Army as they fall back on Dunkirk. Yeah, and Abriel's headquarters have got a direct line straight to back, back to, to London, haven't they? Or straight to Dover. So that phone line yes. is open. So Tennant can at least talk mano a mano to, to, to Ramsey. Yes, you know, which yeah, makes, obviously makes a massive, massive difference. Yeah. Uh, and also, of course, it's uh, it's 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 Tennant who discovers the Mole is is a potential jetty. Yes, absolutely, and that's probably his biggest single contribution. Is this idea that getting out through the main harbour, getting out over the beaches, is going to be helpful, but it's just not going to deal with the volume that's required of getting people away. And, and I think it's also Tennant who is very, when he arrives, very clear about the fact this can only be about saving people. The priority is right. getting people back to Britain. You know, any hint that we can get any equipment off. That's Forget it. sort of just wishful thinking by this stage. It's got to be about people and a pretty crude and ruthless churning through a volume of people to get out. 
So accepting mm. that there will be high risk and high casualties, but to get people off in volume and in time, that's what you've got to do. And so, yes, he's the one who pushes them all. And again, there is a bit of uh, sort of precedent and memory for this, because in things like 1918, so the raid on Zeebrugge, where the British mm. put ships like Vindictive against the mole in order to land people. That's a case study that's then taught through the wars. And effectively, what Tennant done is, is just reverse that. You know, you can use the mole in order to get volumes of people off. You experiment with it. You see if the, the draft of the ships, the, the lack of wreckage and maritime hazard, and he works out, yep, we can do this. And then I can start really taking tens of thousands of people off. Um, um, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's just, still, I mean, it's still <laughs> it's still boggling uh, that the, the entire thing and that and that it and that it does come down to to something just basically as simple, actually as simple as that. Um, and him having the, you know, like you say, the muscle memory, but also him having the him have the him having the clarity of thought and the, and actually that he's been delegated to make a decision like that. Absolutely. The, the, I think that's the, the key the, thing. So Ramsey from his career, having been frustrated a couple of times where he felt he was being sort of, you know, people looking over his shoulder all the time at work. He was absolutely of the, if if you needed to, you just gave him kind of complete autonomy to do whatever he yeah. thought was necessary as the man on the spot. That's all we've got time for today with Steve Prince. But don't worry, he's back tomorrow in day two of our Dunkirk special series. Bye for now. <laughs>